I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. In 1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? with the wind has captured the imagination and acclaim of the entire world. The screen has never known a love story to compare with this, when Rhett Butler meets Scarlett O'Hara. I love you more than I've ever loved any woman. And I've waited longer for you than I've ever waited for any woman. Let me alone! Kiss me once. Can't we ever forget that day at Twelve Oaks? Do you think I could ever forget it? Have you forgotten it? Can you honestly say you don't love me? No, I, I don't love you. It's a lie. Well, even if it is a lie, do you think I'd go off and leave Melanie and the baby? I'm not cornered. And you'll never corner me, Red Butler, or frighten me. You've lived in dirt so long, you can't understand anything else. And you're jealous of something you can't understand. Good night. It's not that easy, Scarlet. Turn me out while you chase Ashley Wilkes, while you dreamed of Ashley Wilkes. This is one night you're not turning me out. A love affair you'll remember as long as you live, filled with all the fire and fury of the times in which it happened. 
Gone with the Wind. First picture to win 10 Academy Awards. The most honored, the most talked about motion picture in all film history. Welcome to episode 12 of 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time we are looking at Gone with the Wind, which was released in 1939, at least in a limited release. The wide release began on January 17th, 1940, and it ultimately ended up staying in theaters for 12 years, accumulating what is now the highest movie gross of all time when you adjust for inflation. So it has sold more tickets than any other movie in the history of American cinema, and probably world cinema. The directing is credited to Victor Fleming. George Cukor started it and got fired. The screenplay was by Sidney Howard, based on the Margaret Mitchell novel, and was produced by David O. Selznick. Now, listeners are used to Trey joining me for these podcasts. Hello, everyone. And this time around, we have the first in what we're hoping is going to be a fairly regular thing, where we've got a third party joining us to have the conversation. And our inaugural guest in these recordings is none other than the host of Is It Jaws, which is why people are going to hear a lot of the same, because we've agreed to release this in both feeds roughly simultaneously. So welcome aboard, Paul Spataro. Oh, thanks, for, thanks for inviting me on here. Uh, you know, the Academy Awards were a big thing for me back in the day, back before I got, uh, I don't know, spoiled on them to some extent because of some of the choices they made. Uh, but this is, you know, you're, you're in an era now where the Academy Award meant a lot, and you're right now you're in the year of the movie. So this, this is a great place to join you as far as I'm concerned. So I'm, I'm honored to be the inaugural guest. Yeah, we're we're very happy to have you. Actually, listeners of Is It Jaws would have heard the three of us previously on the episode of Psycho from Is It Jaws. I'm sure we'll be making other Is It Jaws appearances. For all, for all I know, because of the recording schedule, we may appear together on Is It Jaws before this. That's what happens when we have a, a lead time of roughly a year. Yeah, exactly. I don't, don't usually have that length of a uh, lead time on Is It Jaws but I'm happy to do it in this particular case. All right. So it, it's uh, like I started to say, though, I just, just to kind of get us into the meat here a little bit is what a year 1939 was. So many great, great movies that were released. And I, I think as, as a young man, I just could not understand how Wizard of Oz did not win Best Picture until somebody started pointing out to me the movies that came out that year. And Eventually, as a slightly older, you know, I guess an adolescent, when I saw Gone with the Wind, I said, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, just to do that rundown now, the nominees for Best Picture that year were Gone with the Wind, of course, Dark Victory, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka, Of Mice and Men, Stagecoach, The Wizard of Oz, and Wuthering Heights. You also have Gunga Din that year, Young Mr. Lincoln... Destry Rides Again. Hunchback of Notre Dame, Son of Frankenstein. Each Dawn I Die. And my parents, my parents, my mom and dad were big fans of the uh, story of Vernon and Irene Castle. 
that not that that would win Best Picture, but uh, I, I, as a kid, I loved uh, Jesse James with Henry Fonda and Tyrone Power, Flying Deuces with Laurel and Hardy. I mean, just so many just movies that have survived to today. And when you talk, consider the fact that you know how long ago 1939 was, and how much movie making has progressed since that time. It's pretty amazing how many movies have survived in the consciousness of people. Yeah, some of the nominees this year were a little bit more lightweight than others, but there's there's not a mediocre film in the bunch. Yeah, this was this was a year when the studios saw World War II coming. People were were thinking, yeah, war's going to break out, and they didn't realize that America was going to be the last ones to join the war. A lot of the world was already fighting in 1939, even though America didn't get drawn in and start fighting until late 1941. So coming out of 1938 and the Great Depression, and people they were worried that people were going to be holding back their box office dollars, they made a conscious choice to market 1939 as the greatest year in the history of movies starting in 1938. So they hadn't even decided what, some of these movies were going to be. But they said, no, 1939 is going to be a banner year for movies and film. And they had to keep that promise because they had it plastered everywhere. So especially the the releases later in the year, they were going over and above to make sure they had a very solid lineup to try and keep that promise that their marketing dollars had made. And we definitely see the results of that. I mean, in addition to what you've already mentioned, there was another Thin Man, which is the third or fourth in that franchise. There's the original Some Like It Hot, not the Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon version, but an earlier version. It's Yeah, there is no shortage of contenders for the major awards in 1939, and Gone with the Wind is still one of the most nominated films in history with 13 nominations for this year. And, and it also survives to this day on the greatest movie of all times lists that come out. It isn't number one on the list as it once was, but it's it's almost routinely in the top ten in, in just about every list I ever see. We might as well do the, the quick, or try to do a quick plot summary of it. Good luck with that. Yeah, as we've already discussed with Cimarron and Cavalcade, we were in an era where the sweeping epic showing you know, a family over long periods of time, was a popular genre. And this has elements of that, but instead of focusing on the entire family, it's really focusing on just one woman, starting at age 16, shortly before the Civil War breaks out in America. And we've got about four hours of film. The Civil War ends around the halfway mark, and the amount of time shown after that is considerably more than the time shown before that. So we start off with a very beautiful but flighty woman who is very immature when she's 16 and she's in love with one particular man and will happily flirt with every other man she meets and she marries one sort of out of spite to spark jealousy in the Ashley Wilkes who she was really interested in and you know that first husband of hers dies during the war uh, not in the glory of the battlefield but just, I think it was pneumonia and measles compounded together, if I remember the letter. And as we go, we see how this southern belle from the rich plantation, how her world falls apart during the Civil War. You know, the Yankees destroy her homestead. 
to the large part. The building was still standing, but they they gutted it. She loses both of her parents under different circumstances. She marries again, not for love, but for convenience and political and economic positioning. That husband dies, defending her honor, really. And she ultimately marries Rhett Butler, who's been a man in her life for most of her life, who defies all the Southern gentleman stereotypes. He's only looking out for himself. And he recognizes that she is also a rebel who puts on pretenses, but doesn't really buy into a lot of the social customs of the South. And he likes the fact that she's her own woman and had fallen in love with her when she was 16. And they have a child who also dies in an accident. And when things go and Scarlett, the lead, eventually realizes that Ashley Wilkes, who she's been waiting for, not only doesn't love her, but the love she felt she had for him was more a dream and not real in the first place. And she's genuinely in love with Red Butler. By the time she sorts this out and goes back to Rhett to say, okay, I am yours for life, things had gone too far, and he leaves her with every indication that he is not coming back this time. So those are the broad strokes, but obviously in a four-hour film, there's way more details than that. Yeah, well, when he left, he didn't get it then. That's the, that, that's, is that, I'm going to throw right out to you guys, is that the most famous line in a movie ever? It is one of them. It's pretty high up on the AFI list. Yeah, a lot of lists have Rosebud as number one, but I don't think Rosebud had the Rosebud. I mean, actually, I don't think Citizen Kane, uh, while a great movie in its own right, never had the popularity that this movie had. So I don't see where that line really competes with this one. Yeah, you don't remember Rosebud from Citizen Kane because of the line. You remember it because of the end reveal. Yeah, big true. You remember the, you know, frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn because of the line and the delivery. The line, the delivery, it fit the story perfectly. It wasn't forced. And, you know, in 1939, it was a little bit scandalous. Oh, yeah, it did cause a scandal to actually use the word damn on the air in the Hayes Code era. Um, and I pulled up the AFI list of the 100 greatest movie quotes of all time. And, yeah, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn is number one. Rosebud is number 17. Okay. Just out of curiosity, what's number two? I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Okay. I can't argue with that. I'm not, I will say no more. Yeah, we'll get to that. This, this is a movie, you know, that, that when I was a kid, it was still being periodically re-released in movie theaters. And unless I'm mistaken, I do remember in the 1970s, so think of how long after this release it was, I think that was the first time they ever showed it on TV. And it was a, you know, a major showing over two nights. It might have been over three nights. I'm certain. The length of this movie, it could, they could have done it three nights. And that was the first time I ever saw it. And I remember, you know, my mom was a big fan of it. And I remember being pulled in. The first thing that jumped out at me was that uh, Superman was in it. Uh, so for what, for what that's worth, uh, even though his part is exceedingly small. But just to see him on the screen in any role other than Superman uh, surprised me. But the epic nature of the movie just jumps out. And as, as you mentioned, Blaine, I think it's incredible how it can be so epic and then so focused and character driven at the same time, which to me just is something that you 
you you very very rarely have seen, and I don't know if you've ever seen it executed better than this. Uh, so I, I think it deserves its place in history for that alone. Oh, I'm I'm from Tennessee. I still live in Tennessee, and the, this film was the film equivalent of uh, the Ten Commandments down here. It it's never gone away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it definitely has that that place in history. Like I said, it is the well adjusted for inflation. It's the highest grossing movie of all time, and some of that I think is because the way people have or the way people consume movies has changed over time. When this came out, if you were going to see that movie, you saw it in the theater. There was no waiting for streaming, no waiting for home video, no waiting for TV. That just was not an option because television technology existed, but it wasn't a practical way for the vast majority of people to get their entertainment. That was still 15 years away at least. It was, it was 15 years away before it became, I think, publicly available and probably 20 years away before it started to become widespread in people's homes. Yeah. So really, the, the major competitors in terms of the, the field of entertainment at this point, you had movie, books, and radio. And depending on your location, the, the traditional stage. And putting aside books, because obviously this was based on a book, this was a prime example of something that could not have been done on the stage or on radio. No, not easily. Radio, you might have been able to put something together, but the stage, there are just... You you have to give it credit, regardless of what you think of it, because there are definite issues I'd like to get to at, at some point. But from a pure production standpoint of the sets and the locations and the cinematography, that... Uh, yeah, all of my issues are story choices that I said I want to get to. But in terms of how you put a movie together, there is very little, if anything, you can criticize about this one. I think if, if you wanted to do this as some sort of, some form of stage production, I think, I think it actually can be done in its own way, only because of what I mentioned earlier, that it is epic in its scope, but it's also a character study. And I think you'd have to eliminate the epic nature of it in, in the adaptation and really just focus on the character study. And if you did that, I think you could still have some a winning story here because I think the story ultimately is what stands out more than anything else. I think the execution of the story is great, and that's what's made it, given it its longevity and all. But I think the story itself is terrific. One of the things I really like about this, and I think we should probably talk about the casting in a little while, but... uh. The character of Scarlet, you know, as you mentioned, she starts off, she's 16 years old, she's incredibly spoiled. At the end of the movie, she goes, she's gone through all sorts of character moments. She's gone through strife, she's gone through difficulty, she's gone through happiness, she's had everything. But really, she hasn't had any character growth. She's still a selfish, self-centered person. She's come to a realization that she loves Brett Butler. Yeah, Brett Butler. Uh, Rhett Butler, excuse me, not Brett Butler, the former Dodger center fielder, Rhett Butler. But she's still totally self-centered and ego, you know, egocentric in how she's approaching life. And ultimately, it's, you know, yeah, it'll be the, uh, you know, tomorrow's another day. So I, I, I don't think she I don't think she actually grows as a character, which I think is amazing and probably one of the more realistic movies in that in that 
way because not everybody does grow. Some people go through their whole lives being selfish and self-centered. And not, you know, but the difference is in a movie, you usually want to see that character growth because that's the satisfaction you get from the film. In this one, I think it's almost satisfying to see that she just stays strong in her own way and refuses to bend to society and, and what's going on around her. She's just, you know, she is what she is and that's it. I think it's an incredible character. The only growth I see from her is that she just will break bigger and bigger social norms as the movie goes on. She's always had something of a rebellious streak, but there's a bit of a difference between, you know, how low she wears her dress when she's 16 versus, you know, driving her own wagon as a business owner later in the film. She matures and she becomes more cynical, but uh, both of you are right. She she never loses that that ego and that selfishness. And they, I, you know, it's it's very famous just to kind of move to what I was saying that they went through a an incredible uh, casting session to try and find just the right person to, to play Scarlet. And you look at the cast of this movie, and it's just choice after choice that were like spot on perfect. Now, I say that having never read the novel. Perhaps if somebody read the novel, they might say, oh, this character was presented differently, and I don't know that they're right for the adaptation of the novel. But as just a standalone film, and not comparing it to any written word, I think the casting is incredible. I think everybody gives an absolute A performance, and everybody seems very, very natural in the role they're given. And there's chemistry between the characters, and I, or between the actors. And I, I just think, you know, just one of the best uh, put-together movies I've ever seen. Yeah, I would agree. I also haven't read the book. But I will agree that the casting is a perfect fit for the characters as they appear in the screenplay. So, like we said, we'll, we'll leave that wiggle room for people who are fans of the book to say they, they're not right. But I suspect if we really dig into the details of why they're not right, it'll be that the screenplay misrepresented them. And then the casting perfectly represented that screenplay. Yeah, if that's even the case, which we don't really know. Yeah. Yeah, I would think that's a worst case scenario. And this, if you look at the awards, like we said, 13 nominations here. So we might as well run through the nominations and the wins for this year. It obviously won Outstanding Production, which was what has now grown into Best Picture. Victor Fleming won for Best Director, even though he directed about 60% of it and 40% of the rest was directed by George Cukor, who kept coaching Vivian Lee and Olivia de Havilland secretly on weekends at their request. Clark Gable was nominated for Best Actor, but did not win. That went to Robert Donat for Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Vivian Lee did win as Scarlett O'Hara. It was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor. That went to Thomas Mitchell for Stagecoach. Hattie McDaniel won for Best Supporting Actress as Mammy, beating out Olivia de Havilland, who played Melanie. That must have been, that must have been a tough choice. Yeah, because watching them, as, as great as Hattie McDaniel was... I was also very impressed with with Olivia de Havilland in this. That you, you also could have uh, nominated Butterfly McQueen. I thought she was incredible in this movie. I'm sorry to inter- I'm sorry to interrupt your uh, your your listing. But... No, that's fine. This wasn't eligible for best story. That went uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington because that's the award for the original screenplay. Sidney Howard did win the posthumous Oscar for adapting the Margaret Mitchell novel for Gone with the Wind here as the best screenplay. So the one. Best screenplay could be based on 
other work. Clearly wasn't nominated for Best Live Action Short Film. One reel or two reels, which went to Little or Busy Little Bears and Sons of Liberty, respectively. Disney's Ugly Duckling won for Best Animated Short Film. The scoring went to Stagecoach. This was not nominated. It was nominated for Best Original Score by Max Steiner, but that went to Herbert Stolhar for his work on The Wizard of Oz. Best Song was also Over the Rainbow for Wizard of Oz. It was nominated for Best Sound Recording, but that went to When Tomorrow Comes. It did win Best Art Direction. It was not eligible for the Cinematography Black and White Award. This was the first year there were two Cinematography Awards. It did take home the Color Cinematography Award. And it also took home the Best Film Editing. And it was nominated but did not win the best or the first award for Best Special Effects. That went to The Reigns K. And I'll go ahead and throw this out there. Thomas Mitchell wasn't nominated for Gone with the Wind, but Thomas Mitchell was still in Gone with the Wind. So you still had your best supporting actor, though he wasn't recognized for his role with Gone with the Wind, was still in Gone with the Wind. That's true. Yeah, he was her father in this film. I would think audiences know him best as the forgetful uncle in It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, uh, Uncle Billy. I think that is probably his most famous role. But I do find it amusing, as you mentioned, Trey, that he, he wasn't nominated for this, but he was, I guess, competing with himself to get the nomination. I, has there ever been a year, maybe you guys know, where somebody was nominated twice in the same category for two different movies? I believe the record is John Williams was nominated for three in the same year. Yeah, and up to this point, the year that Claudette Colbert won for It Happened One Night, which I'm thinking was 1935, she, or 34, sorry, she was nominated for uh, two films that year as Best Actress. Okay, so it has happened. I, I wasn't certain. It has, but in the earliest years, it was for the person, and sometimes they'd nominate this person and list like three or four movies they had done that year in a single nomination. So it was not so much winning for a film as it was for the body of work in the year. That seems pretty interesting, actually. Yeah. And while I can see benefits to that, now with the current production schedules, people don't make three or four movies a year like they used to with the old studio system. When you were under contract and, oh, that wrapped? What's starting next Monday? Okay, here's your role in that. So when this movie came out, Clark Gable was already famous and, and a top Hollywood actor. Yeah, having already won Best Actor for uh, It Happened One Night. Vivian Leigh, though, was an unknown, and she carries this movie. And she still has more screen time than any other winner of the Best Actress Award for that role, partly because this is a long movie. This is the longest movie to win Best Actor to date. Now, who knows? By the time people hear this, that may even change. Uh, certainly, you know, where we've started this, 100 movie series and the reason it's monthly is because we wanted to start it now instead of a few years from now but yeah clearly the the 99 film or the 100 films for these 99 years haven't all been awarded yet but yeah it, it is very unique like like you're saying there are very few people who would have carried a film like this so early in their career and they interviewed 1400 people for this role and they actually did uh, readings with 400 of them. And Vivian Lee was the ultimate choice. And, and to focus on the quality of her performance, when, when we say that she you know, carried the film or, or 
really, you know, stood out. Usually when that's the case, that actor not only has the, you know, the brunt of the film time, as is the case here, but they're usually up, they're usually against a less stellar supporting cast, which allows them to stand out and carry the film much more. You know, even when the actors are of that caliber, their roles are usually not so meaty. In this instance, you know, Clark Gable has a very meaty role. Olivia de Havilland has a very meaty role. Thomas Leslie has a very meaty role. Hattie McDonald has a somewhat meaty role. Butterfly McQueen, I think, when she's on the screen, she steals your eyes to, towards her immediately because she's just so different the way she presents that character. She's funny. She's heartbreaking. There's so much about her that's just, you know, that just grabs you. So there's, there's, there was a lot of competition, a lot of great performances going on around her that could have distracted you from a lesser actress, uh, especially one, you know, with as little experience as she had at the time. And yet she, she commanded the screen when she was on it. And despite the fact that, as, as I mentioned earlier, she doesn't play the most sympathetic character in the world. Uh, you do kind of come to love her as a character. Yeah, and even looking her up on the IMDb, this is her 10th film credit out of 21. After this, she was definitely picking and choosing her projects. And the most famous one being A Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, that's when, when the IMDb lists their, their top four films. She's got Streetcar, Gone with the Wind, Waterloo Bridge, and That Hamilton Woman. Oddly enough, 21 credits, and credit number 20 is Singer in an episode of The Ed Sullivan Show. <laughs> yeah, not, not the biggest body of work. No. You know, when, sometimes when people win uh, championships in sports, they say you can never take that away from me, and that's what she has here. She has, has a, a tour de force performance that no one can ever take away, no matter what her body of work was after this. Yeah. So now, shall we address the elephant in the room? Sure. In that, yeah, this movie was as popular as it was. It also received a lot of criticism for propagating. A racist view of America. You know, we've got the the intertitles with you know summarizing the political events surrounding the Civil War using very emotional charged language, like the Great Invader for the the leader of the Yankees, and referring to the gentleman of the South as you know the last time the world would ever see anything like the Knights of Old with their nobility and chivalrous nature. We've got. You know, who are now, people who are now emancipated slaves who are still working for the same families. You know, David O. Selznick didn't understand the criticism saying the movie was racist because in his mind, he had fixed that by taking, when he took the novel, apparently everyone who was cast as a villain was black in the novel. And he changed some of them to white people, especially the ones that were attacking Scarlet on the bridge. Mm -hmm. They were... You know, they they were black in the book. He made them white, and he did things like this to try and to to try and settle it down. And he was surprised that there still was a reaction. And you know what? It may be significantly better than the book, but it doesn't change the fact that every black actor, including the Oscar-winning Hattie McDaniel, Oscar Polk, Butterfly McQueen, Everett Brown, everyone that we've already talked about, their roles are very stereotypical roles for black people at the time. They're all the, the slaves or servants in a time where that's kind of glorified. 
there's even a conversation about the right amount of violence to use on your slaves. Yeah, oh, that, and that's all, you know, it, it, you, you can't defend that, and I would never seek to. But I think sometimes you have to look at movies through the scope of when it was made and what it's present, presenting. I think in this instance, the, the failure is to present the other side of the coin. Uh, what they presented was the slave owners who were benevolent and said, you know, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> you know, like that's kind of the way they tried to present it. At least that's how I saw it. In, instead of, you know, presenting the, the atrocities and what was going on in that respect, uh, they, they made it seem as if people in the North who, at least uh, in theory, were looking to free the slaves, that they were these animals that were coming in and just ransacking their world. And I'm sure there was some of that going on, too. But to try and you know present, I, I guess in in times of war, that's the way the propaganda works. That you know we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. End of story. We're going to just present it that way. Now this is some seventy years removed from the Civil War, you know whatever the case may be. When you think about it, it's not that that far in time as we look back on it now. And there was a fascination in this period of time with the Civil War and particularly with the Southern viewpoint of it. I mean, the, the year prior, Jezebel came out with Betty Davis, very similar in plot and subject matter to Gone with the Wind. There are a lot of films that are set around and during the Civil War, during the 30s, and most of them seem to take the Confederate viewpoint. And I'm not, I'm not sure why. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough to say on that. And Paul, your math is pretty good. It's, the movie is 74 years removed. Okay. The book was 71 years removed. Margaret Mitchell was born in 1900. This book was published in 1936. And the Civil War ended in 1865. So, yeah, there is definitely a time span here. So it, it may be glorified. And so, yeah, some of the older audience members would remember being in and possibly serving in the war. But for most people, it would have been stories they heard from parents and grandparents who were no longer with them. But they would probably have parents and grandparents who served or who were at least around during that time, which is something you can't say now. Yeah. But, you know, I don't want to turn this into a whole civil rights podcast here. I think between 1865 and 1939, the view on civil rights had probably moved along at a relatively snail's pace as compared to where it moved from 1939 until today. Uh, I think, you know, particularly in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it moved forward a lot. Uh, I, that's not to say we don't have a lot more to go to really, you know, achieve equality in the way we should. So, again, I, I don't want to dismiss anybody's thoughts on, on that. And uh, I'm not trying to say we live in a perfect world now because we don't. Uh, but I think views have changed over the years and sometimes at a, at a glacial pace. So... That's why I say, you know, you need to look at it from the perspective of 1939 and when it was made then and what the cultural mores were then. Now, you know, you indicated there was some criticism of it even back then, and I'll, I'll totally accept that. But 
clearly, you know, in, if you were making this movie in, in 2020, you wouldn't have the same perspective as you would in 1939. You would, one would hope not. And I mean, th this had been criticized up. There's actually way more detail in that in an episode of You Must Remember This, which is a really good Hollywood podcast, uh, especially the ones focused around Hattie McDaniel in what is a recent at the time of recording series on Disney's Song of the South. And there was already a push because all the black roles in Hollywood were stereotypical roles like these were. And there were boards trying to convince the movie makers, no, let's have some meaty roles for the black actors too. Because we've got history, we've got stories. And Hattie McDaniel was actually one of the few people who opposed that working in Hollywood. Not because she thought it was a bad idea, but because she, her perspective was that the racism in the Hollywood execs and that small number of people who fondly remember the days of the South or have glorified it in their minds if they're too young to remember it, these people are not going to give you media roles. They're just going to stop giving the black people any roles to stop the angry letters from coming in. She was saying it's a fight worth fighting, but not today. And it looks like she was right in the way they reacted. I think she also famously said, I can either play a maid or I can be a maid. I get paid more playing a maid. Yeah, it was, uh, when people asked why she was taking these roles, that was her response. Because she said, because I could be a maid for $70 a week or I can play a maid for $700 a week. Yeah, and, and you know, for what it's worth, you know, I, and I know it's not really a, it's not a justification. Again, I, I don't know, but I felt like Heidi McDaniel and Butterfly so likable in this movie that they were done justice in that they just you know and you know the role that they played as far as in society of that time it was wrong uh, you know no, nobody's I, I don't think anybody's going to argue against that but if you you know if, if you kind of put yourself into that world and you had those people in your lives I think you'd love them <laughs> I think that's that's something to be said for them and something that you'd uh you know, it, it's harder to be as critical of the characterization when they're so likable. It is, although that, I mean, that is one of the complaints because Manny's, Patty McDaniel's stereotypical role is the surrogate parent to the unruly white child, which is the same sort of thing that Uncle Remus was doing in Song of the South. And But when you think about it, that, that gives her character more depth than her real parents. She's she's not the parent, and yet she takes on that role, and she's wise and strong, and does all the things a parent should do that her parent, her real parents aren't. Yeah, I will gladly be corrected on this by anyone who knows more than I do, but my understanding is that the the issue with that is not the role itself as much as it is the fact that you know there's only two character types they're allowed to play, and this is one of them. Yeah, and I won't argue with that. Yeah, it's the lack of variety in roles. Even though it's a, it is a, a good role and a strong role that shows a lot of character for her. I mean, she and Rhett Butler are really the only two people who could stand up to Scarlet and say, "No, don't do that." And Mammy is way more likely to get that through to Scarlet than than Rhett Butler is. And for what it's worth, Prissy didn't know nothing about birth and no babies. Uh, I think it's also worth mentioning how how understated and likable Olivia de Havilland is in her role. I really just, you know, it's, I think it's not easy to play basically the saint in a movie. 
because she's got she's got nothing she's got no negatives whatsoever in her character, and I think sometimes that can be a boring role to play uh, for some of these actors, and I think that's why a lot of times they like to play the villain. But she she again you know just like everybody else when she's on screen you just you understand the way her character is and you're rooting for her and it's interesting because Scarlet is doing wrong by her in a lot of the movie and yet you still love Scarlet too so it's it's just you know there's, there's a lot of levels to this movie and the way the characters are portrayed. I I was fascinated in the contrast between Rhett and Ashley because as someone who grew up in the South to where a lot of this culturally is in the DNA of what you're taught, Ashley personified the Southern gentleman myth and Rhett was more like the reality of the time. Yeah, I, I can see that. Is, is, is Rhett Butler the, uh, the forerunner to Han Solo? Well, he is one of the earlier roguish characters. He's probably not the only forerunner, and probably not the first. Uh, uh, there's some Cary Grant movies where Cary Grant was kind of in that role, but we haven't really talked about them on this podcast because they weren't on the nominations lists. No, I, and and I, I agree with that that there were others, but I would not be in the slightest bit surprised to hear Harrison Ford say, "Yeah, I was facing." Yeah, that's entirely possible. It's, I, I've never heard him say that. I've never heard him say that, but I would not be at all surprised. So shall we get into comparing this to other films of the year, uh, as far as the the Letterboxd and IMDb users are concerned? Sure. Yeah. So if we go through that in terms of how history has viewed them and ranked them, if we go with the Internet Movie Database, which tends to be more in line with the mass audience, I find, it's actually the third highest rated film of the year. The first is Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game, which was not eligible for an Oscar in this year because it didn't actually have its U.S. premiere until 1950. And as we may have heard in previous podcasts, you're not eligible for an Oscar until the year in which you're shown in a theater in Los Angeles. So the number two movie of the year is actually Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So that and Gone with the Wind at number three are both averaging 8.1 out of 10. And, I mean, they're doing fairly well. Gone with the Wind is currently sitting at number 165 of the Internet Movie Database's 250 best movies of all time. And you look at The Wizard of Oz and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in spots four and two on this list, they're also in the top 250. So as we said, this was already a very strong year for movies. And I'll I'll just go back to it again, because you just reminded me of this, Blaine. We we talked about people possibly being nominated for multiple roles. Thomas Mitchell had a hat trick this year. I had forgotten that he was one of the reporters in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I think Mr. Smith Goes to Washington gets lost in the uh, lost in the rush to love, and I do love It's a Wonderful Life, as you know what, what they used to call it Capricorn, because the movies were always corny. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a terrific movie. It's, it's really, really good. And it's, it's in a vein of It's a Wonderful Life, I would say. It's you know, similar thematically. And I think it gets forgotten these days, uh, whereas Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz are still in the uh, public consciousness and, to this day. But I think Mr. Smith is largely forgotten by many, many people. Yeah, Mr. Smith is 
is is still well remembered by film buffs, but the average Joe on the street who enjoys movies but doesn't consider themselves a buff, yeah, I would say Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind are the two movies from this year they are most likely to know. Uh, if we go to the letterbox list that where where the ratings tend to be more in line with critical ratings, Rules of the Game is still number one for the year. Uh, then we have the movie called The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum, which is also from outside the U.S. And then we get our U.S. releases. Only Angels Have Wings with Cary Grant, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wizard of Oz, Stagecoach, and then we get Gone with the Wind before Nanachka, The Roaring Twenties, and Down. So if we go by, by sort of IMDb users and Letterboxd users, of the nominations, it seems like history most fondly remembers Mr. Smith of the nominees this year. I really need to push that higher up my to-watch list. I haven't seen that one yet. Ooh. I, yeah, I, I personally, of the ones on the ballot, I prefer The Wizard of Oz, which is also a fairly elaborate production, also largely directed by Victor Fleming, but just doesn't have the the social elements that really rub me the wrong way. I think I think the biggest thing about The Wizard of Oz is so much more easily rewatchable, just if only on length alone. It's easy to put The Wizard of Oz on you, I'm going to watch it once a year list, but Gone with the Wind is hard to do that with. And, and, and I'm not going to, I'm never going to try to defend the social elements. Don't, don't get me. Discuss those kind of at length. Uh, I just want to make it clear, I'm, I'm not saying anything about that was okay. Uh, but I can I can oversee. I can overcome it in viewing the movie. You cannot have a movie set in the American South and not depict racism without undermining the importance and difficulty of that fight for equality, which, as we said, is still ongoing. I've heard people claim that racism ended with the civil rights movement in the '60s, but no, the mm-hmm. civil rights movement in the '60s upgraded the status from legally required racism to optional racism. I, I, I think the 60s made people aware of racism. That doesn't mean it eliminated it. I think before that, people were, were ignorant of it, largely. Yeah, a- after that, it was just, you know, you may not, a, a black person may not feel safe using a certain bathroom, but they can no longer be arrested just for using a certain bathroom. Yeah. Uh, just two quick things. One, we're going to have to find an excuse somewhere, some way to do a podcast on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, I think I, I think I know a show that covers show, movies that didn't win the Academy Award necessarily that we might be able to cover that on. I think so. And out of what was nominated, my personal preference is Stagecoach. But I cannot find a flaw with this film. The shot where they pull back and she's in the field of wounded soldiers has not left my mind since I've seen this. And, and just to, to hit on that shot a little bit, the, the, the epic grand scale of that shot, but then combine that with the fact that she's so lost touch with reality that there's all these soldiers in agony dying, and she expects the doctor to come running back with her because no one is having a baby. Yeah. It's uh, for for me, uh, The Wizard of Oz is probably the most watchable of the movies. Although Mr. Smith is pretty close to it, Gone with the Wind, though, just with what it means for filmmaking, what it represented as far as casting, story, and epic, and all of that, 
I, I personally think it was the correct choice. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have been the one I voted for, but it's it's not a win I'm upset by. We'll, we'll get to some of those later. Yeah, I think we've even had some already. But yeah, this is not one of the years where I'm going to say they were wrong to have this as the winner. So, Paul, since this is technically a crossover episode, do you want to ask the question? Absolutely. Gentlemen, is it yours? And I'm going to step forward since technically I'm crossing over onto your show and I'm going to go first, which I normally don't do on that show. And I'm going to say, absolutely, this movie is yours. No question about it. Boys? This was actually kind of tough for me. I almost gave it a, a Jaws 2, but I'm I'm going to go ahead and bow with conventional wisdom and give it a Jaws. I find Scarlet unlikable through most of the movie, but I think you're also supposed to. The length makes it something to where it's not a, hey, I just want to watch a movie, let me pop it in. But I don't think I could turn away if it was on. Yeah, and see, to me, had they... I could easily call it Jaws if they gave any indication anywhere that the the practice of slavery actually was wrong instead of just, well, it's different, but not necessarily better or worse and glorifying the South. Just because of that, I'm going to go with the Jaws too. Because it's, as I said, if you look at it purely in terms of how you put a movie together, th- this is a masterpiece. It's just that element where it's glorifying the slave owners without presenting the other side is something I just can't completely get past. And I totally understand that. I, I cannot argue with that. And I would argue with anyone else who agrees that, that that just bothers their sensibilities to a point where they take the best of the movie. Uh, again, I, I kind of take it for what it is and I try not to look so much at the you know, what is, what is it, messages, morals, and meanings? I, I, I try not to see it as that being one of the messages that slavery was okay. Because I don't <laughs> think that that's true. Uh, I don't think that is okay. And I just think they wanted to present these people as the heroes of the story without necessarily pontificating on that particular dilemma. And I could see where it would bother somebody that they just kind of sweeping that issue under the rug. Yeah, I mean, even if they'd had off conversations, because Scarlett is so self-centered, just about her wants and her needs, and she's one of the people that benefits from slavery, if they made it clear that, no, from her perspective, she doesn't see anything wrong, because she is shallow enough that she doesn't think about implications for anyone else. And if we saw, you know, side conversations where some of the people in the South were going, I mean, even if it was Rhett, when he was saying, yeah, we're not going to win this fight, even if he'd said, and to be fair, I don't know if slavery is is right anyway. Like you just have one person voice that. It it would have been easier to say, Oh no, this is not the message of the whole movie. This is our shallow and self-centered lead character who hasn't thought things through because she doesn't think anything through. But anyway, uh just to wrap up, the last element of 99 Years 100 films is who would we recommend this to? And as the one who's clearly the the most negative on it, I would have no problems recommending it to anyone who has reached that maturity where they can discern and, and critically analyze whether the message coming from the film is a message they want to internalize or not. If you're still so young that you just kind of accept what you see on a subconscious level, 
I wouldn't have that person watch this yet. But if you've reached the point where you say, I see what message this movie is sending and I disagree, if you could do that, go right ahead. I would, I would vary off that only to the extent that I think, I don't know that the movie is, I don't believe the movie is trying to send that message. I think that's an inadvertent message that it is sending. I think, as I said a moment ago, I think they're trying to sweep that issue under the rug and try to kind of ignore it, pretend that it doesn't exist. And I can see where that would be offensive to some people. And I could see where you wouldn't want somebody saying, oh, see, this is just the way life was and it's okay. But on the other hand, I, I would recommend that somebody who's mature enough to sit and watch it as a grand epic and not believe that those values are in any way reflective of today's society. I would agree. We've focused on the racism, but there are a few other elements in uh, the film as well. At some point, Rhett's and Scarlett's relationship almost becomes abusive. So, so, so long as someone's mature enough to uh, separate what's romanticized and what's not, and can make up their, can intelligently make up their own mind about the different topics, I, I think this would be fine. I don't envision anyone below you know, a 15, 16-year-old watching this just because of the length, to be honest. And I, and I think, actually, you know, Trey, I, I think we've been remiss because we've hit on the racism of the movie. But we, and, and, and I hate to make that the, fo you know, the negative is the focus because I do think this is a great movie. But we've failed to mention the misogyny aspect of the movie that exists to a great extent as well. Uh, you know, Scarlett is person, despite her egocentric nature and narcissism. But there are also areas where, from a, uh, you know, a relationship point of view, where, where Red is pretty much physically abusive of her, uh, where he's, he's, he kind of forces himself on her at, at times. And Well, not, not kind of. He does. <laughs> that's a horrible, horrible... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. Well, I mean, to some point, when I say kind of, I'm thinking like everyone who does it to kiss her, uh, as opposed to when he does it to... Uh, to be more intimate. Than and, and, and Yeah, when he decides he wants the kid she doesn't want. Yeah, exactly. And and I don't think the message is ever that that's okay, but I don't think they get that. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's part of the reason that part doesn't bother me so much is, I mean, that, that sequence where he says, you know, I am going to have a son that you are going to give me, regardless of your wishes, and then picks her up and carries her up the stairs when she's fighting back. That, as uncomfortable as that is, the the way that film or that scene is shot and set up, I don't think anyone in the audience is going to watch that and go, "It's he's fine. What he's doing is okay." Right? That you're right. They they should have condemned it further. It's not until the next morning when she wakes up smiling and he comes in. He's like, hey, "Yeah, I I sorry. I shouldn't have done that last night." Oops, my bad. Yeah, that. I mean, they're reacting like, you know, he forgot to change a roll of toilet paper. There should have been a much stronger reaction. In the moment, it was condemned. But the next day, it was like, oh, well, that's life. Yeah, they, they get on with their lives too differently. But again, uh, and, and it's a sad fact of life, I do think that was considered to be more acceptable in the time that this movie is set. Maybe not in the time it was filmed, but in the, in the, 
the time period when it was set, I think that was a, considered to be an acceptable behavior. I don't think that Rhett Butler was ever going to sit and face any type of uh, police activity based on that behavior, and that's wrong. Yeah, and I, I've, I've actually heard in other conversations that the, the concept that you can have rape within marriage was not legally recognized until a couple of decades after this movie was made. So it's not even that they knew better at the time of filming as readily as, as with the racism, that was still a thing. If, uh, you know, if a man and wife were married and, you know, he said, well, I could divorce you for this and she refused to get the divorce. Well, then some people said, well, what, what choice did she give him? Which doesn't really wash in this movie because apparently he was still seeing Belle fairly regularly anyway, but at least at that stage of their relationship. Yeah, it, 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 there are some significant moral dilemmas posed by this movie, and you know we're not ignoring them. But in my rating, I guess I do ignore it to some extent. I'm, I'm willing to kind of overlook those issues to just rate it on an entertainment value of the movie itself. And I don't know, maybe that's wrong. Really, maybe that's not enlightened enough of me. But I do absolutely acknowledge that those things are wrong. Yeah, I I don't think any of us would be giving a movie a Jaws rating if it was made today and had those same elements presented the same way. I hope the people who, you know, well, I hope everybody to some extent is, is offended by those things, but I hope to whatever level of offense they take to those things, they're not offended by the fact that I enjoyed the movie. The movie doesn't want you to be offended enough by Ritt's behavior, but it does want you to be offended. So that's a little bit easier for me to swallow. Anyway, so I think that wraps things up, unless anyone has final thoughts. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. All right, so in that case, those of you who are listening through the 99 Years 100 Films feed, uh, I'm going to say, you know, join us next month when... David O. Selznick's next major production, titled Rebecca, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, comes out. And those who are listening through the Is It Jaws feed, well, I don't know what Paul has planned next. And given the lead time, I don't know if he can. No, I do not. I just want to take a minute and tell anybody listening to the Is It Jaws feed to seek out the other feed because it's a great topic for a podcast with two really good hosts. And I want to thank them for having me on their show and letting me posted as, as one of mine as well. So, uh, you know, I don't, I have no idea what we're doing in two weeks, but we'll see you then. Yeah. And uh, just one last shout out to those listening to 99 years, 100 films. Also check out is a Jaws. It's actually got a much broader scope because it, it, Paul has a guest on every time and it's not necessarily the, well, here's the best picture winners in order or anything like that. It's okay. What does the guest want to talk about? which leads to a wide variety of passionate conversations. It may not cover the best films, but I can honestly say when it hits my feed, it's typically the best show of the week. Ah, thank you so much, guys. All right, so we will hopefully hear all of you in whatever feed you're subscribed to. Or you'll be joining us in two to four weeks. My mom always said... Life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir.
i want some more.